Welcome to the latest edition of the Carmichael Governance Podcast. I'm Dermot O'Carbui, CEO of Carmichael. Carmichael is a charity that provides supports to other Irish charities, particularly in the area of governance. You can find details of what we do and a wide range of free resources on our website. That's carmichaelireland.ie. You can also find previous editions of our governance podcast on our website or on your favourite podcast platform, be that SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Acast. I'm absolutely delighted today to have Michael Wickham-Moriarty, the Director of Corporate Services in Trocra, as my guest for our podcast series. And this is a particular interesting recording of the podcast. This is our first COVID-19. Normally, I'd have Michael in front of me and we'd be chatting away. But we're now, through technology, we are on separate lines and recording this podcast. So it's a, a first. So, Michael, when I've had guests in here, I've been interested to get to the backstory of, you know, you, you are Director of Corporate Services in Trocar at the moment, but we've all gone on journeys and ended up in our particular roles. So I'd be interested in just the journey that you have had and, and how you found yourself where you are today. Um, I, I trained as an accountant with PricewaterhouseCoopers. I got out of college and, and trained very fortunate time in the middle of the Celtic Tiger years, and I was in the tax department of PwC then. So very exciting, interesting to develop sort of professional competencies complete accounting training. But I realized I, I probably didn't want to stay in a practice firm for my career. I wanted to try different things. So I decided from PwC when I finished my training contract to try a bit of overseas volunteering. So I went from PwC, the tax department there, to volunteer with Go in Sudan. I lived in Khartoum for a year volunteering with Go. And they had a program at the time where they would take on qualified accountants who hadn't worked in the sector before, and they would pay them sort of stipends for living expenses and allowances, but not really a salary of the volunteer program. So it was very much a, you give a little, you're learning a lot, uh, giving a little bit, but being supported. So that was my entry into the not-for-profit sector. And, and from there, I've worked professionally as an accountant in the sector since that time with Go. I suppose I've worked with large and small charities, and I kept up the volunteering. I've been on the board of two different charities, and again, very different types of charities. Your current role, your title is Director of Corporate Services, and I'm sure that covers a multitude of things. You might just give a sense of what your typical role involves on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, so um, I, I had served, I suppose, I, I did different accounting roles in different charities before this, um, and I was head of finance in the last two charities I worked for. I was head of finance in an electric drug project, and then I, I had a finance in the Central Remedial Clinic. So Director of Corporate Services, I suppose, is I, I supervise and support the head of finance. I'm not the head of finance. So it's the first time sort of moving out of that pure accounting role. So the teams in corporate services that I support and supervise are finance, an IT operations uh, team, an enterprise systems team, a standards and compliance team. And I suppose on top of that, I wear a couple of hats. I'm the chief risk officer for the organization and I'm secretary to the board and now company secretary. So I do quite a lot of governance work and support from the board. Um, in terms of a typical day, well, the COVID typical day is quite different from the uh, normal typical day, but the COVID-19 restrictions, you know, I'm just out of a crisis management meeting that we have every two weeks that looks at business continuity and short-term risk. You know, we have our executive leadership team, the, the senior management team in Troker meet once a week. I, we, we had a short meeting of them this morning as well. But the rest of my day, I'll be in one-to-ones with the heads of function that I support and supervise, so I'll have a meeting with our head of finance after this. And, and then, you know, so it's a mix between supervising, supporting, coaching, giving direction to the functions. But I suppose because I wear hats, there's a, quite a bit of doing as well as leading. So, you know, I would lead on the 
as some of the governance functions. So, for example, one of my to-do list jobs is working away on our annual report for the 2019-2020 financial year. So when I'm not in meetings supporting my direct reports and their teams, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to keep that moving. And you mentioned COVID-19. It has been a sort of a, a complete upheaval for a lot of people in trying to adjust to the sort of the, the, that phrase they keep using, the new normal. For Troca, what sort of things have surprised you? Because in Carmichael, the first few weeks was like rabbits in the headlights. They said, how are we going to cope? But it's amazing how people adapt and adjust. So I just wondering, what, is there any sort of things that surprised you of how you've been coping as an organization during this emergency? The first thing that surprised me, I suppose, was, was around remote working and how quick the transition was. You know, it was very frantic when the early stages of this, when we were planning for it to sort of have business continuity for our finance functions and for our IT services to support remote working across the organisation. I, I remember early in the crisis, there was a case in Google and, and Google Ireland decided that they would have all their staff working from home for a period of time. And, and when I learned about it in the news, it was almost like a test to see if they had the capacity to do it. And it was long before the government issued restriction orders on workplaces. And I remember hearing that and thinking, well, God, we'd never be able to do that in our place. It just wouldn't work. And, and of course, all workplaces, Troker and all workplaces had to shift to that within weeks. And we had been moving in the IT section of Troker towards a cloud-first approach for all our IT services. So that had prepared us. And similarly, we had been working and developing, and we, we just finalized the remote working policy early in the year unrelated to COVID-19. So again, we had the sort of some of the planning and thinking done. Um, but I really didn't think we'd move to it and, and be able to keep most of our functions operating. But we did. And, and so that was a, a big surprise. It was one of the other things that um, I probably should have thought about but hadn't was how resilient our country offices are to do this. You know, for Irish-based offices and organizations, we don't necessarily do disaster planning that often unless, you know, it's something on a risk framework that we think is a good idea. Whereas in the country offices we work with, uh, and I've seen it with other charities I've worked with, they have to be ready for shutdowns due to health risks, due to natural disasters or, or rioting or political upheaval. So a lot of our country offices, you know, they had the business continuity plan in place. They'd, they'd operated them, they'd used them. You know, there, there had been hibernations or restrictions before. So so they and, and our international colleagues have been through this and were probably better versed in it than our head office was. So that's been really interesting. But then, you know, there, there are differences. A lot of our staff, even those who live in Longford or the Midlands, can still get good connections at home and continue working. Whereas our staff overseas, you don't have the level of broadband or connectivity for working from home in a lot of the developing countries where we operate. So there are different challenges. But I suppose how smooth remote working has gone was a big surprise to me. And, and again, I wouldn't take it for granted as my colleagues who, who sort of done a lot of work both in advance and in the first few weeks of, of this crisis to support that. And one of the challenges a lot of organizations have, because going suddenly from this new working environment, is keeping in touch. Have you been doing anything interesting in Trocra to keep in touch with uh, your work colleagues? Yeah, we're, we're trying to do this in meetings that we have. You know, a, a certain um, corridor of our office in Manus would have had a tradition of scones on Friday. It wasn't linked to any particular team. It was more sort of the people who, who tended to go to Friday scones and people were taking turns to buy the scones or bake the scones or bake a cake on a Friday morning with tea. And, and that's something that was started recently digitally. So we've had Zoom call scones on Friday mornings for some staff have participated in. We also have, in Troker, we have a tradition of tea parties when we reach a milestone, a piece of work. Or, or if someone was departing. And we have had some departures in recent months. So there's been some virtual tea parties. Um, but, but it has been challenging, you know, been busy. We're doing a lot of Skype calls and Zoom calls. And, and again, very much in the early part of the crisis, you know, we almost forgot that 
social interactions. It, it happened almost by accident rather than planned. And, and I think we're realizing as, as a leadership team how we need to make more space for that, how we need to make, you know, all the things we're missing from not being in the office physically together. You know, this is something we would have had some awareness of before this because we work across the globe um, and we have our, our country directors and management teams and colleagues who we don't see on a week-by-week or month-by-month basis. But I think having having all of our offices shut down and, and working remotely makes us focus on this more. How do you build a social... How do you, maintain the social links that you're not just launching into talking about the next piece of work that needs to be done. No, and I think I think people have become very creative and very flexible and adaptable, which has been great. People are just saying, let's get on with it and deal what we've got in front of us as best we can. You were mentioning your range of responsibilities just in the annual report, and it's coming that time of year for us in terms of Good Governance Awards, which we'll be launching next month in June. And, and the whole purpose of the Governance Award is to recognise good adherence to good governance practice. Last year in the Governance Awards, Trocra more or less swept the boards in its category and then won both the Annual Report Award and the Governance Initiative. So from your side of things, what sort of things have made a difference in Trocra that has led to this success and been publicly recognised as being a leader in, in the field in terms of quality of annual reports and good governance practice? Some of my interest in this comes from, from before my time even in Trocra. Um, I, I worked as head of finance in the Central Media Clinic for a number of years. And, and it was after the, in the aftermath of their crisis, um, I was hired in by the post-crisis CEO and post-crisis board. And they had come from a space where there was limited public reporting, was minimalistic to a certain extent, and they had some very well uh, publicized um, governance issues. And the new board and CEO were trying to move beyond that and, and turn it around, which they absolutely um, succeeded in doing. So when I started with the Central Remedial Clinic, I had started just when their previous annual report, financial statements, had been published. I remember at the time getting calls from journalists with their queries on over what was in the report, what was in the figures, and what was behind the figures. And it sort of set me in a space that, you know, we moved to SOAP accounting for the financial statements in the first full year that I was in CRC. And SOAP accounting is great for framing what to disclose and how best to be transparent in, in disclosures and governance in financial reports. But I also took the mindset of, let's put as much information out there so there won't be any journalism called. We, you know, if a journalist called with a query about a particular thing, whether it would be staff salaries or any aspect of our work, that we could point to it in the annual report. Now, now Troco, when I joined it, was a very different organisation to CRC when I joined it, and they had been self-reporting, quite strong self-reporting for a number of years. And I, I think some of the things that really work with Troco is the alignment of the strategic plan and the annual report. The, the current strategic plan in Troco, which is just ending, has, has nine clear goals, and we very much in the annual report report based on the, the activities and outcomes in those nine goals. It helps that we deliver that sort of information to Irish Aid, one of our major funders anyway. But we very much wanted to show in our annual report how it performed against strategy. And other than that, it was a lot of, you know, using the SOAP as best we could. And, and, you know, I went to additional training with Chartered Accountants Ireland on SOAP reporting. I suppose I'm, I'm trying to constantly improve things and add additional things each year. I also use the Good Governance Awards themselves to improve, I suppose. Every year when you submit, you, you get the feedback, whether you're shortlisted or not, whether you are successful or not, you get the feedback on what the judges thought of your annual report. And there's also general report on, there's, the, the announcements talk about the, the sector as a whole and, and what your peers were like. So I would have looked at that feedback. I would have looked at what peers do and try to incorporate and improve each year and build on success. And, and we're very much trying to do that again this year, even though we, we won last year and we're very happy. I, I'm very much talking with my, my colleagues, the head of communications, that how do we improve this further? What governance improvements have we done at board and management level that we can get across it into the annual report and 
and I suppose communicate publicly to our stakeholders. And, and I suppose I'll just give you an example of here, looking at peers to try and strive and improve. Goal in recent years have really done a lot of work on their complaints handling, and, and it's, it's great work in terms of investigating issues and reports and complaints, particularly overseas. And that very much comes through in their reports, in their annual reports. And I suppose I saw this and sought to incorporate that into our own annual reporting. Now, we had a different mechanism and different means of categorizing and communicating on complaints. So, you know, I, I did it based on our own infrastructure. But again, when you see these things in other organizations, it's not just what you're saying in the annual report, but it's what can we do better in the organization? You know, is, is there something around governance here that, uh, you know, we just don't want to talk about, it, but we want to improve in our own organization and then communicate it to our stakeholders? Some very good insights and gems there for people who are looking for themselves. And I just say, one of the things that the judges do look for, and is a critical one, is telling the story in relation of what you set out to achieve and how you've been progressing against that. And sort of the, the link between the strategy and the achievement of the strategy in the, is a critical part of, that, of telling the story in your annual report, which is, you know makes a good report, a, a great report, if, if you can do that that well. One, one of the things that the, the SOP does talk about, and, and people who train on annual reports talk about is, Reflecting failures as well as successes, and I think particularly as charities, you know, we, we want to hang out our brightest colours and show our best side in, in everything we do, and uh, it can be a challenge and, and challenge for me even to, to talk about the things that don't go well, but one area we talked about with our board in recent years are things such as instances of fraud and complaints, you know, and being transparent and, and recording these kind of things objectively and then communicating them clearly. So, so there's a, a sort of a, a nervous area to sort of complain, communicate things that don't go well. And, and I wouldn't say we've got a control group, and, but I think that's sort of the next stage for ourselves and a lot of charities is to get a more honest reflection on failures as well as successes. Yeah, no, no, that's a very valid point because it was one of the things that came back with the judges when we review each year, you know, the judges look back at what sort of things that struck them and they said, you know, there's no perfect organisation there. Nothing ever, for every organisation, nothing ever goes to plan or there are things where you may get blindsided and may not have addressed it as well as you would have liked. And being upfront in the report and say, look, we, we recognise this, um, this didn't go as to plan or we have a problem in the area and this is what we're going to do about it because it gives a reassurance to the reader that, that is, it isn't just a, a, a a PR job in the report. The board is a true and fair reflection of the organisation. Challenges and all, because we all have challenges. And I think it's an important point to make that it's not a, it's not a PR loss, lossy that you're producing. It is a it's an important communication document. And another thing that you did mention quite a bit in, in here there is about stakeholders. And I think people need to remember there are different stakeholders for the annual report. And you need to address those needs of each group of stakeholders because what your your funders are looking for may be very different from your people that donate and, and contribute to the work of, of Trocra. And, those are, and then you've also got your, your staff. So it's, bear in mind that there are different readers and there are different needs to be addressed. One thing in relation to that, which again, we haven't cracked in Trocra yet is but, I, I, you know, it's something we talked about in CRC, and I think CRC did some good work on this. But, you know, in communicating annual reports to stakeholders, how do you make it accessible? Particularly, say, if you're uh, an organization that works for children or, or people with intellectual disabilities or people who English isn't their first language. I think it's NALA, the, the Literacy Association, has done some simple English assistance to other charities. And I think... You know, these are the kind of things, and, and, and it's more relevant to some charities than others, depending on their stakeholders, but in trying to make the, the reports accessible as possible. And, and for Troca, we talk about, well, you know, uh, people do download our annual report. I think it's the most successful document on our website. But, you know, how do we get excerpts or key pieces of information from that across to our broader supporters, the kind of people 
not like myself and yourself, who loves downloading a 100-page annual report and reading over the weekend, but someone who might be supporting us and, and you know, might like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, that we can get things across quite easily and accessible. Or, or for Choka, our, our church supporters who interact, whose interaction with us might be talk at church during Lent. You, you mentioned um, you your previously worked with CRC and, and currently with Trocra, so you've had good inside experience of uh, putting in good governance practice. Um, what sort of things helped create that sort of culture around good governance? What sort of things have you seen have worked um, in your career so far? Yeah, I, I, I think it's a hunger from, from the top of the organisation, and I suppose I, I really saw this in CRC because when I joined the, the board, it had there was a new board that had been in about a year and its CEO about the same length of time. And they really wanted to change and improve. But governance was a top priority for that. So it's something, you know, when I was interviewing for the job, I talked at the interview stage, uh, you know, the, uh, about the sort of things, changes I wanted to make and, and the changes the board and the CEO wanted to make. So, so that appetite for change is a real driver. I think you have to be looking at best practice and you have to have people who've access to are able to go to, you know, whether it's webinars or, or some training, and, and they're available, uh, very available across Ireland um, from Carmichael, the Wheel, and other associations, you know, on, on, on ways to improve your governance standards. I think healthy challenge at, at board and committee level really improves governance, you know, and, and as management, as an executive, you know, it's, it's almost a double-edged sword. You want board members and committee members to challenge you to improve the organisation, but on the day that they are challenging you, and if they're really challenging you, it can be... Uh, Frustrating and, and difficult, particularly if you've spent a long time working on something and it's being shot to pieces, perhaps by a diligent board or committee member who's gone through the details and, and disagrees or, or is finding fault with you, so or for, finding fault with your work. But that level of challenge, I think, is really important. I think internal transparency and communication is really good. And again, I would have seen this across a number of organisations that I work with. Our current CEO in Troker, Kiva DeBar, is very good at communicating to the staff. She records videos in, the, in our three working languages, English, French, and Spanish, on about a monthly basis. This is even pre-COVID-19 to communicate with our staff around the, the world on, on, on what's going on and what, what's happening sort of centrally in the organization that is being taken at executive level and board level. So I think a culture of, of internal communications really strengthens good governance as well, because there's no point in you know focusing everything at board level and sort of in the annual report if you aren't communicating well with your internal stakeholders. But I think as well, a lot of it is, is culture of the organisation, you know, based on the values of the organisation. And charities have, by and large, strong strong values so they can pivot to this. Another thing is, is the attitude towards governance and stakeholders as opposed to senior management and the board. For us, we're just, um, you know, we're stewards of the resources of the organisation. We don't we don't own Troca or control Troca. We are acting on behalf, whether we're executive or, or board, we're acting on behalf of the stakeholders, the beneficiaries, the donors, and that's why we are should be accountable and transparent with those stakeholders. And what, in your experience, things go wrong, the mistakes they make in terms of failing to implement a good governance culture, the warning signs are things to watch out for? Yeah, I, I think there are longevity challenges in, in charities. And, and I think this is changing in the sector as a whole. You know, when you've got board members who've been there for a long time or senior management who's been there for a long time, or, or a dominant sort of founder CEO, I, I think those are challenges. And I'm not saying you can't have someone who's a CEO for a long period of time because it can, it can be a career people can get on very well in the job. And I, I know and I've worked with some who are, who are great. You know, if you've got board or, or senior management who's been there for a long time thinking about, well, how do you guard against the difficulties that might arise? 
I think it's quite reasonable and standard to have term limits for board members. You know, now that the Charities Covenants Code specifies this, you know, we can make it almost universal. So term limits for board members and the committee members certainly helps it. It gives clear expectations. It allows people to step down and move on from volunteering with the charity at an appropriate time, but it also facilitates healthy turnover. Um, I suppose one of the other challenges or pitfalls is, and, and I feel bad for sort of small and medium charities, is when they don't have the resources to invest in these same things. Often you, you don't have a, a large management team because of the size of the charity and its funding profile. And you have a small number of managers doing multiple things. You know, things like governance reporting to the board, reporting to, to external stakeholders can be squeezed or come last. You know, one of the great things when I was in CRC was they were able to have a part-time company secretary and that was the person's role. And it really helped support governance, but a lot of charities couldn't afford a dedicated company secretary part-time or full-time. And a lot of the other things that really assist governance, like internal audits, access to good legal advice, you know, does cost money. So I find that that can be challenging in smaller charities. You know, I've, I've been in situations where you want to pick up the phone to, to a solicitor to get some advice on a matter, but, you know, you're worried about the budget and, and how much that phone call might cost or the advice that follows it. And, and, and I suppose related to that, you know, it's large, well-known, prestigious charities or well-established charities can easier attract good experienced board members who volunteer their time. And a target for those smaller or less well-known charities to attract, you know, well-experienced uh, people to, to give up their time at board level. So, you know, it's not so much a, a mistake or pitfall, but, but I do feel for, for, for smaller charities. But having said that, I've, I've worked with smaller charities who've had great board members and, and, and great managers, but the resource squeeze can be difficult. Those are very, very valid challenges for the smaller charities and the vast bulk of our sector is made up of smaller charities. What sort of things could they do? Are, are there the things that if you're a small charity that you can do to demonstrate and practice good governance for your organisation? I'd certainly latch on to as much free and low-cost training as you can. I live in the city centre. I have a small toddler now, so I'm a bit more restricted in my time. But before my son was born, I went to quite a lot of breakfast briefings and evening events. And a lot of the breakfast briefings were free. There are some that you pay for, that they have costs, whether they're with professional associations. But somehow over time, I got the mailing list of a number of accounting firms and legal firms. And, you know, I'd just go in before work to an 8 a.m. breakfast briefing and it would be on a specific governance topic. And, and, and my colleagues in different charities would do the same. And you get quite a lot of free advice. You can be going into the office at 9 o'clock, half nine, with some ideas to tackle some of the challenging governance issues. So that's available for, you know, those sort of things can be available for free. I think talking to peers, sharing information. And, and again, I think for, for smaller charities, associations like Carmichael, like The Wheel, can offer strong support. And I think look at other organisations, you know, entering the Good Governance Awards and getting feedback can, is, is free advice and free feedback that you can use to improve your, your own governance practices. I suppose one thing that's also relatively low cost, and I, and I think a lot of charities don't do this, but sort of openly recruiting for board members. But in a lot of cases, board members are suggested by existing board members or potential candidates are suggested by existing board members. And occasionally putting something out, whether it's advertising on your own website, using a service like Boardmatcher or, or another association to have an open call for board members, it, it has the potential to bring in independent people who aren't connected with your existing board members or your senior management. Um, and, and that sort of new eye on the charity can really help um, steer things. Some very good tips there. And I would, I would echo the, the amount of free resources and advice out there 
is available to organizations and charities of any size. And I, I, like yourself, would be a great user of these events, you know, from different bodies. And as you say, a lot of the legal firms are pretty good, particularly in the current climate. But ourselves in the wheel would be treasure troves of quite a lot of free resources. And ourselves in the wheel, we've just been successful in getting the contract to deliver training on the Charities Governance Code, which will hopefully be ramping up soon. And that will be another opportunity for organizations, particularly small organizations, to get free training and advice and support on implementing the code. So, yes, there is a lot of resources out there and people should be aware of that and, and, and um, look out and start by going to places like ourselves or The Wheel or Boardmatch or Charities Institute. There's a lot of help out there and a lot of free support and a lot of advice and guidance that charities can avail of. Uh, one question I like asking my guests um, for you, what would be your top wishes for the sector over the next five years? Where would you like to see it evolve or, or develop over the next five years? I think I think there's a lot of work to be done between the relationship between the charity sector and the state. I think it was last year there was a report commissioned by the Department of Health on the governance of the relationship between the state and Section 38 and Section 39 bodies, HSE-funded um, health bodies, largely hospitals and large disability organisations. So this was a report that was led by Catherine Day, and I think it was the independent review group it was called. It's a great document to, to read. If that was implemented in full, I think that would uh, achieve a lot of my wishes for the sector. And um, It talked about the relationship between the state and charities that it funds, and this was within the health sector, but I think it applies wider than, than health sector charities. I'm just talking about genuine partnership between the charity sector and the state, you know, moving beyond the sort of the funding only and short-term one-year funding only to a true partnership relationship. And, and I feel we in Trocra enjoy this type of relationship with Irish Aid. It's not just a one-way relationship. We engage with Irish Aid about what, where we think their priorities should be. And um, we have multi-year funding and we shape our, each other's priorities. Um, but I think that relationship that Irish Aid has with NGOs is quite rare in the relationships between the state and the charity sector. I'm not sure whether it's a quote from the report or not, but the Catherine Day report, but it can be characterized as a master-slave uh, relationship or a master-servant, sorry, relationship in a ma- many cases where, you know, a strict a service level agreement with money for one year and lots of compliance and conditions. Whereas I think the state has a lot to learn from the charity sector. The experience that charities have with working with ultimate beneficiaries and representing their views, I think could enhance the perspective of state funders and state service providers a lot. So, I suppose my main wish is for a better and improved partnership between the state and the sector. As I say, it is there in some elements of the state, and I'd commend Irish Aid in particular for that. But I think if other aid funders of charities look to the Catherine Day report or look to the sort of relationship Irish Aid has with its funding NGOs, I think there's a lot of progress that could be made. I, I suppose if I can keep going with my wishes, if I get three wishes from the genie, I, I think my second wish might be around, I suppose, turnover in the sector itself. I'm not one of these people who says that there are too many charities. I think the established charities we have all started from something small at some stage. Uh, and I like when new charities appear in and do new things and, and add new, address new needs. But I do think on the other end, there is more space for mergers and cooperations and partnerships between charities. So I do think I'd love if more charities explore this. I know there are some and some clusters that are very good at it. But I think for, for healthy turnover within the sector, perhaps there should be more mergers or orderly wind-downs and making space for new charities starting up. And so that sort of dynamism. And, and my third wish, I suppose, is around, actually, my third wish is, is really around surviving COVID-19 and the long economic tail that might come with it. I mean, charities provide such vital services to vulnerable people in Ireland and around the world. 
COVID-19, uh, the health and, and restrictions pose an immediate threat and there'll be a long-term economic threat coming after it. Um, and I really hope that the sector will will be able to meet those challenges and meet their needs of beneficiaries in Ireland and around the world while supporting their staff and their people and uh, having maintaining good relations with their donors, both state donors, public donors, corporate donors. Excellent. And I, I would actually say it is, it is a worrying time in the current COVID-19 situation and nationally and globally. So it is one that we hope that organisations will manage to pull through and survive and continue to do their excellent work for their beneficiaries because you know, there's a clear need for it. This has been absolutely fantastic, Michael, and I really do appreciate you giving your time in a busy schedule given the time we're in it. But So it's been great talking to you and some fantastic insights that I think people will get in terms of looking at communicating with our staff and staying in touch with staff right, right through to sort of good governance practice and, and, and good advice in terms of renewing and reinvigorating the organisation. So thank you so much, Michael. Thanks so much, James. Take care. All the best. Thank you for listening to our latest Carmichael Governance Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, it would be of great benefit to us if you could give it a rating, as that helps to create greater awareness of these podcasts. So until the next time, Slán Gofol. Go